morning, West Covina Christian Church. Good morning, good morning. It's good to be with you all today. God is good, isn't he? Amen. NFL's back in, uh, back in action. Dodgers have the most wins in all of baseball right now. And uh, in the midst of all the chaos in the world, like God's still on the throne, right? Uh, so I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all of you. Another reason that I am personally thankful to God is that I am dating uh, Kylie over there. Um, uh, she tells me she loves me, she appreciates me, and she thinks I'm great, right? But if I were to ever let these things get to my head and be like, you know what? I am great. I'm probably the greatest in the world, right? She'd be very quick to knock me down, back down to earth and keep me humble, right? It's all out of love, of course. And that's another thing that I appreciate about her. She's really good at telling me when to tone it down, right? So um, in our passage today in 1 Thessalonians 4, we find ourselves in a similar situation. In 1 Thessalonians 3, Paul praises the believers for standing firm in their faith despite the persecution and the, and the temptation that the church was facing. However, in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12, we see that Paul says that though the church has done some encouraging things, they still have room for growth. Let's read the passage. It says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, you, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. Oftentimes when the Bible repeats something, uh, it means it's significant. Uh, we see in verse 1 and later on in verse 10, which we haven't gotten to yet, uh, that Paul says the phrase, to do this more and more. And uh, doing the right things is definitely an important thing. Um, but, and this is just my opinion, it's not necessarily scripture, right? But I think that God is more interested in who we're becoming uh, rather than what we're doing, right? He's more interested in who we're becoming. However, that being said, God cares about our actions because what we do impacts who we become. That's the first point. What we do impacts who we become. This is what Paul is talking about when he says that we must be sanctified, Right? Unlike justification, which is the one-time act of God making us righteous in his sight through his life, death, resurrection, and now a relationship with Jesus Christ, sanctification is our lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus. Sanctification is our lifelong journey of becoming more like Jesus, knowing him and loving him more. While sanctification might sometimes be uncomfortable, as it requires a lot of like stripping away of uh, our sin and that which keeps us from knowing and loving God and becoming who God is calling us to be, it's worthwhile if we love and prioritize Jesus as our highest and greatest object of affection, right? So what are some of the things that we need to get rid of if we want to know him better? In verses 3 through 8, it says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. 
the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. So there's a lot there, uh, and of course, like I would get the sex chapter as I'm filling in for Pastor Corey uh, as he's on vacation, right? But that's okay. This is going to be a good message. So let's dive into it, right? What is sexual immorality? The Greek word is porneia, and that literally, for our all our purposes, it means sex of any of any kind with anyone or anything outside of God's intended created purpose in marriage, right? So this is the explicit definition of sexual immorality. But then, when I, so when I was reading that in the commentary and I was studying, this naturally then, uh, for, the, for me, I was asking the question, well then, like, is everything else okay? Like, where's the line? Like, how far is too far, right? However, I would argue that this is the wrong line of questioning, um, and it, it reveals, like, the sin, the sin in my own heart, right? It's, instead of asking how far is too far, a healthier question to be asking is, what are we cultivating, right? And what, what are we cultivating? It's definitely important to have boundaries, but to be thinking about the bigger picture, like what, what are we cultivating? So to me, Paul's definition of what is sexually immoral extends beyond improper sexual intercourse, right? Paul doesn't say that like, oh, you know, hand-holding, that's okay, right? But exposing your ankles, that's when you messed up, right? Uh, what is uh, appropriate might differ from culture to culture, right? There's some things in God's word that are very clear, but some things that are not, right? And and second, it's easy for us as legalists to stick to the letter of the law, but miss the heart of the law completely, right? So instead of giving us, like, this is what you have to do and this is what you cannot do, Paul gives us three points to consider, right? In verse 4, he asks the question, are you controlling your body in holiness and honor? Are you controlling your body in holiness and honor? So are you mastered by your sexual urges? Right? Can you, do you find yourself addicted to sex or pornography? Are you using your body in a way that is causing other people to look at you lustfully? We are called to honor God with our body because in 1 Corinthians 6, 16 and 18, it says to flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside of his body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Verse 19 says that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now that we are purchased by the blood of God, we are no longer slaves to the lustful passions of this world, but by the Holy Spirit, we can live in freedom and sexual purity. Verse 5 calls us to be different from the, lust, from the passionate lust of the pagans who do not know God. And so that leads us to think about the question, is your sex life fundamentally different from the prevailing culture? Is your sex life fundamentally different from the prevailing culture? It's kind of hard to think about our sex life in church, maybe. Uh, but for the church in Thessalonica, this was a very significant issue. Right? There, it was a young church, and in the Greco-Roman era, they had all sorts of gods, um, but in particular, they had a fertility god, right? the god of, of like sex, where basically there would be prostitutes at this temple, and the way you would worship at that temple is to have sex with all the prostitutes. 
you would also, um, everything in that culture was centered around pleasure, extramarital affairs were encouraged. And for those who were saved into the church, they needed to be taught that there was a different way to live that is pleasing to God. For us, Paul's call to live a different and holy life remains largely the same. While our society might have some cultural differences, the fact remains that it is still largely centered around pleasure and instant gratification. Sex is a very present theme in our society today, in our movies, in our media, in all sorts of opportunities at the touch of our fingertips. It's generally accepted that like moving in together is the next step in a relationship and that premarital sex is too. Right? And I'm not trying to condemn any, anyone here today uh, because I know that these situations are super complicated and, and that uh, it's, it's definitely a struggle to live in a way that, that God is calling us to. But I am challenging us to, to try to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Romans 12, 1 through 2 puts it like this. We are urged to, in view of what God has done for us, offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And this is our true and proper act of worship. It also says that we should not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul's call is for Christians to look different than the rest of the world, and that our sex ethic is you know, it's just one part of that transformation, but it's a very important part of it. Lastly, in verse 6, we see, uh, he, we see the question, do your actions take advantage of a brother or sister? Do your actions take advantage of a brother or sister? So I've talked with a lot of guys uh, in my small group, whenever, right? And a lot of them, they have expressed that they're really excited to get married in part because they're excited to have sex. Uh, and, I, and myself included, right, I'll just say it. Um, <laughs> And I know it's a very small part of marriage, right? And that it gives way to a much more beautiful and deeper relationship with your spouse. But sex seems like a pretty cool thing, right? God made it. It's, it's, it's meant to be something that uh, in, in its proper context is, is God-glorifying. So anticipating sex is okay, but it can very easily become a poor view of sex if I'm not careful because, like, I start thinking, oh, it's going to be so great for me, right? How can I, what can I get out of it, right? And something that I've been convicted of recently is that, like, marriage is not simply just legalized lust, right? It's not, it, sex is meant to be, like, giving of one's self. In Philippians 2, 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility regard others as more important than yourselves. So this verse obviously applies to more than just the act of sex. It, um, if you lust after people or images, like, are you not dehumanizing God's creation and skewing your own view of what real intimacy is? Even if you have, like, two mutually consenting individuals, if you're not married and you break it off, won't there be a lot more hurt and brokenness than if you stewarded each other's bodies and hearts well? And if... You make sexual jokes at the expense of another person. Are you not taking advantage of them? These are really hard questions for me to ask, and I've regretfully, like, I've done all these things. I, I, 
it, it, it's, tough to, it's a tough subject to bring up, but we, we as the church, as the body of Christ, need to address this topic because God says that it is a serious matter. Uh, in verse 6, uh, in the ESV, it says that no, one, that no one transgress and wrong his brother because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you before him and solemnly warned you. Let me read that again. Verse 6 says that the Lord is an avenger. So as we see in the holy scriptures of God, the Lord is a Marvel superhero, right? He's probably going to get his own movie and replace Iron Man as the next leader of the Avengers. Anyone? Amen? Amen? All right. No? All right. It's fine. All right. So, um, so I saw this Facebook meme, and I thought it was pretty funny, and it was like... Uh, but I think it, it really does this verse a disservice, right? It, it, um, because God, because the Lord is a better avenger than Thor, Captain America, or Iron Man, like, or all the other avengers put together, right? He, he's so much better than that. And, and here's why, right? We, whether we've been taken advantage of sexually or taken advantage of others, there's real mercy and forgiveness in Jesus, we don't need to feel powerless or broken or ashamed because we have an almighty, all-powerful God on our side who fights for us every single day. A God that loves us despite our deepest stains and our ugliest sins. Though recovering from sexual wounds we've received or inflicted might be a long and painful process, and though we might have to uh, deal with the consequences that come afterwards, we can take comfort in knowing that the Holy Spirit's power will continue to work in us and help us to move forward in faith. So as we move on to the next section, we see right after grilling them about sex, Paul is now writing to the Thessalonians about a proper view of work, which kind of seems random, but there's some good connections we can get to later. Verses 9 through 12 says, says Now about your love for one another, we do not write, need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, and in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and that you will not be dependent on anybody." So Paul starts with affirming the believer's love for one another, and then he ends the section by saying, if they follow his instruction, that they, their daily life and work might also win the respect of outsiders. So we can kind of conclude that the proper view of work is both a blessing to believers and a witness to those on the outside of the Christian community. However, when we start to like delve into what Paul actually says is a proper view of work, it gets kind of weird at first. You might be wondering, like, why am I lead a quiet life? Like, mind our own business? Like, aren't we supposed to do the opposite to, in order to be successful in our work? And, like, aren't we called to be examples for Christ? Like, how can we do that if we are just only keeping to ourselves? And, not to, and what about not depending on anyone? I thought we were supposed to carry one another's burdens as the body of Christ. To which I would say, like, yes, of course we're called to be examples and to bear one another's burdens and to do our jobs with excellence. Right? But there's, there's a cultural significance here to what Paul is saying um, this. He says, one commentator, said, commentator says that 
People were very excited to hear that Jesus was coming again soon. So much so that they quit their jobs and then just started lounging around in, in, in anticipation for him coming back. Little did they know they'd have to wait like 2,000 years and counting. Right? But resources run, run out pretty quick if you aren't working. And so they became a burden to their own community and caused the outsiders to look down on them. So Paul is urging the believers to stop being idle and lazy and to work hard that they might not be a burden on anyone and win back the respect of the outsiders. So if, for those of you who need a kick in the pants, if this word is for you, like take that, right? This, um, th- this interpretation makes sense, especially in light of the next, like, the next section of chapter 4, which talks about the end times and which Pastor Corey preached on a couple weeks ago. However, I think there's another interpretation that is equally applicable for us. Just as we can have an ungodly, selfish view of sex, we can have an ungodly view of our work, right? We, we could take that our jobs, our schooling, our retirement, whatever we are doing, whatever season we're in, and just view it as an opportunity to get more for ourselves, right? We as a society are guilty of this mindset, especially like the younger generation. I feel like there's pressure that we always need to be moving up in pay and in status every couple years. And for me as the youth director, like I'm clearly in it for all the monies. Right? Just, just kidding, I'm not. But, like, but I won't lie to you and tell you that I haven't like, envied my friends who are working at tech companies or in other lucrative positions and being like, dang, that looks kind of nice. right? But when we look at the parable of the talents... What is the measure of success? It's not the amount of stuff that they were given at the beginning. It's faithfulness. The master, at the end, he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. But faithfulness isn't typically so glamorous. So often now in social media and movies, they portray the good life, right? I went to to China um, over the summer uh, four years ago. To a, and I talked with a local university student, and in all seriousness, he asked me if Fast and the Furious 7 was an accurate representation of American life. And I felt kind of ridiculous, but, and like kind of bad that I had to tell him that we don't all drive fancy cars off of skyscrapers uh, for the sake of stealing riches from bad guys, right? Um, while we may not all believe that our personal lives need to match up with what we see in the movies... We, it's easy to fall victim to things like social media that tell us, like, our friends just got a new outfit, or they just ate some yummy food or went on vacation, and they always look super happy, and they always look super attractive all the time. And we fall victim to the same, like, comparison and envy, envious trap that we need to not be living a quiet life, that we need to be up in people's business all the time, right? This is why there are so many reality TV shows on today, like Keeping Up with the Kardashians, or, like, why one in four millennials would quit their jobs in order to become famous. The reality is 98% of our life would not make a good movie. Rather, it's the quiet and unremarkable life that will be the context for living out God's great commission. Let me say that again. It's the quiet and unremarkable life that will be the context for living out God's great commission. You might have heard the story of David where he, as just a mere shepherd boy, came in and, and killed Goliath, the, the evil, like, antagonistic Philistine giant. But for the entirety of his life before that, he was, just, he was just the youngest brother of eight relegated to living with the sheep, day in, day out. 
It's these quiet days that God shaped him and gave him the faith to face down Goliath. In the same way, God calls us to be faithful in the quiet and the ordinary as he will use those days to change us so that when the opportunity to face our giant arrives, we'll be ready. Whether we need to work harder as not, so we cannot be a burden, right, or to realize that our job, retirement, or schooling isn't primarily for ourselves but for God and for others, having a proper view of work, of how we are to be faithful in our current season, will allow us to live in a way that is pleasing to God, uplifting to our church community, and will win the respect of outsiders. So... How does it tie together, right? How does, how does a view of sex and a view of work tie together? Uh, I think it can best be illustrated in the story of King David when David becomes king. David defeats Goliath, runs away from Saul, and eventually becomes king, right? And he has great victories. But in second, we get to 2 Samuel 11, and what happens? It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Don't do it, David. Don't do it. Uh, right? So what, what's happening here, right? David is supposed to be out in the, with, with the army, um, this is the time where the kings were going to war, and yet David's like, you know what, I'm going to chill here. I, I've done a good job so far. I'm just going to relax. And he, he, he mails it in. He has a poor view of work, right? And then that poor view of work leads to him being idle, and then that, which then leads to temptation, right? He's just walking around. He doesn't have anything else to do, he, and he sees this woman bathing, right? And that temptation, with, along with his poor view of, of sex, then leads him to sexual sin, right? He invites her up to his palace. He commits adultery with her, and then he tries to cover up his sin by uh, getting her husband to come back, and, and, and so that way that he'll just think that, that they had a child, but then the husband won't, so then he like literally kills the husband. He commits murder, and the husband was one of his loyal generals, right, in his army. And it was only when his friend Nathan called him out, his, the prophet Nathan called him out and, and, and told him that he needed to repent, that he, would, that he was able to, to confess before God that he had sinned, right? But it still had consequences. He, uh, the, it resulted in the death of that child that, that, was, uh, that was conceived in adultery, and it resulted in a very significant stain on David's kingship that otherwise would have been pretty decent. Our own improper view of work and sexual sin are often tied together because we don't put God in his proper place. As, as we saw for King David, it can lead to great consequences, not just for ourselves, but for, the, but for the community as well. Paul knew this, which is why he spoke on it to the believers in Thessalonica and why we would also do well to heed his warning. So there are three action items for a redeemed sexual and work ethic for our church. Number one, understand the why. Are we moved by love or by self? Right? We've already talked about this, but just to reiterate, if we are able to understand the why behind what we do rather than simply just knowing what we're supposed to do, it could go a long way in helping us stay faithful to God's calling. We are not called to abstain from sex outside of marriage just because. 
but rather because as the redeemed people of God who are sanctified and set apart, we are committed to control our body in a way that is honorable to ourselves, to our brothers and sisters, and to Christ. Similarly, with work and school, retirement, or whatever season God has us in, God is calling us to both work hard and yet not pursue advancements, accolades, or material goods out of selfish ambition, but rather to work for the good of the community. Sex and work should not be viewed as what we can gain for ourselves, but rather how we can give of ourselves for the body and for Christ. Secondly, we are called to initiate greater conversation and discipleship. Initiate greater conversation and discipleship. One of the greatest ways we can grow in our understanding of sex and work is how we, and how we ought to live in the light of these things is to talk about it within our community. It's like a really awkward topic to talk about sometimes. And I'll be first to admit that even though like, I'm talking about these things right now, I wouldn't consider myself an expert uh, by any means. But chances are there's some people in our congregation, a lot of people who have good wisdom and life experience to share uh, regarding these matters and that we could really stand to benefit from it as well. This is why Jesus called us to make disciples and, not, and he didn't just call us to attend church. He called us to make disciples. Discipleship means intentional relationship with one another where we can train, encourage, equip, and grow with each other in Christ in a similar fashion to how Jesus did with his disciples. This will help us create a culture of vulnerability and honesty and, and to live, practice what we preach, to live out what we are talking about. You know, if, it, in service, it's pretty hard to like, it'd be pretty hard to come up here and share about how we've become a workaholic or how we have sinned, all our sexual sins, right? Just bearing out in front of the entire congregation, right? We wouldn't do that. But that, this is why we need, like, close community. We need growth groups and disciples who are, really know us and who can hold us accountable and exhort us to speak, uh, to live faithfully. And lastly, we need to create a culture of redemptive grace rather than a culture of shame or apathy. Create a culture of redemptive grace. So as I've been reflecting on these topics to preach to you guys, I... It's hard for me to speak about sex and work because these are some of the two most challenging areas of my life and my walk with God. Like, even as I was preparing this sermon, I felt a lot of temptation to lust and I felt a lot of temptation to procrastinate and to not, to not work hard. And it, it's hard to preach because I don't want to be a hypocrite, right? I, and, and then I start thinking about obedience and in our minds, like how obedience is often so much about like self-control. And, and self-control is a good thing, right? It's self-control to listen to wisdom and not to, to run into temptation. And it's self-control to turn to God as your ultimate satisfaction and not work or sex or anything else. However, it's, it's easy for me to take self-control to an extreme, right? Or two extremes, rather. Uh, oftentimes when I make a wrong choice, I spiral down into this cycle of shame and guilt because I messed up and I, like, I should have made a better de- decision, right? I messed up. I should have made a better decision. And then the enemy starts speaking lies to me. He says like, oh, you don't deserve to be in a position of ministry. Like you, you're a hypocrite, or like, you don't deserve to be in a relationship. You don't have mastery over your lust or like, you don't deserve love period, right? He just like piles it on as much as he can get. And I feel ashamed. I feel ashamed. And the other extreme is apathy. I, I become calloused in my sin. 
And it's too painful to keep feeling brokenness about my sin over and over and over again. And so I stopped caring so much. Like, I know God forgives me and he loves me. Uh, and so it's not so important how I live. That those, that those are my two lines of thinking. And both are neither biblical and totally not in line with holiness, obedience, or sanctification. This is why the final point is so important. We need a culture of redemptive grace to remind us that it's not about our own efforts. When I make a mistake, I think, man, I'm so much better than that. Why did I do that? But my thinking needs to change to Jesus is so much better than that. Jesus isn't a stranger to, to shame or guilt or apathy. He came down from heaven into a world that was full of people who couldn't measure up to God's standards and was full of people who couldn't couldn't care less about God. And he lived a perfect life and died as a perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And in doing so, he broke the cycle of shame and guilt by taking it upon himself on the cross. And he shows us an unconditional, unrelenting, beautifully intimate love that breaks through the hardest, most calloused hearts and invites us into the freedom that is knowing him and loving him forevermore. So, all this being said, when we think about our sex and work, is your ambition to please and pursue God? Are you faithful in wa- and walking in step with the Holy Spirit? If so, great. God is sanctifying you and working on your heart. And if not, great. God wants to sanctify you and is waiting with open arms. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you care about what we do and who we become. I pray that you would help us here at West Covina Christian Church too. By the power of your Holy Spirit, help us honor you in our sex lives and in our work lives. And that we would come together and be a sanctified church that is both pleasing in your sight and free from shame or apathy or lies that would keep us from believing and fully living into who you are calling us to be as your beloved sons and daughters. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Stephen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.